welcome to the Procurement Games Podcast and Open Conversations, where we post the question, is the field ever leveled in our favor? Of course, we are talking about procurement and contracting of minority women and veteran-owned small businesses deemed to be the underutilized firms in government and private corporation contracting. So, my name is Arlen Pingle, and I am a proud Filipina-American entrepreneur. I lead Mackey Company, a strategic consulting organization focused on procurement supply chain management. We basically help government agencies and private companies design race, ethnic, and gender-conscious contract policies and procedures. More importantly, we help folks like you build capacity, capability, and sustainability. We hope that with the stories we share of entrepreneurs like yourself, that you learn a thing or two to help you strategize for the win. Each week, we feature a minority, veteran, or women-owned small business. And once a month, we feature a trailblazer who is paving the way to help move us forward in this ever-challenging and changing world of procurement. Today on the Procurement Games Podcast and Open Conversations, I am excited and delighted to have Tamiko Trot-Benz. Welcome, welcome. How are you? I am well. How are you? I am doing well. It's been a journey for you. I kind of know a little bit about your back-end story. So with that said, tell me about you. How did Tamiko Trot-Benz come to be Tamiko Trot-Benz in the construction industry? Sure. So thanks for having me here today. Um, as you said, my name is Tamiko Trot-Benz. I am the president of Trot-Benz Construction. I have always wanted to take down a wall and put it someplace else, literally. So that's kind of how my brain first started with the notion of construction. I literally had babysat for a Black woman. She had taken down the wall in her kitchen to open it up. And I was like, oh, what do you do? She's like, oh, well, I'm a contractor. So that was my first, what would you call it? My first introduction to construction. And then many years later, high school, always did the wood shops, the workshops, those kind of things. And then I went on to college, did the four-year degree, still in the back of my mind, trying to figure out how I can knock down these walls. And so after four years of college, worked in the business field, left that, went to carpentry school. I did the carpentry school, came out and worked as a finished carpenter for two home building companies as a um, finished carpenter, specifically cabinets, doors, floors, those sorts of things. And then after that, I went on maternity leave. And during that time, realized this is something that I can do on my own. Didn't really have any thoughts of becoming an entrepreneur until that point. So did that, bought some land, bought some houses, built some houses, renovated some houses, did some small like commercial project. After the recession, I went back and worked for others. And then during that process, I also went back and got my project management certification at the University of Minnesota. Worked for a millwork company, left that, and then during this whole time, always kept up my licensures and certifications, and here I am. Yeah, yeah. So mostly, you've done what entrepreneurs have aspired to do, right? It's that free time. 
and then using the, the wherewithal that they already know what they've trained to do to become the entrepreneurs that they are, right? You know, dive feet first in and we kind of sort of have an idea as to what that looks like, but we're really more focused on, we know we can get this done and we'll figure the rest out the rest of the way. Right. Uh, right. And then, of course, there is a, those are the naturally gifted entrepreneurs. We've got the capital, they got got the backing and they just go at it with gusto in some ways, some way, shape or form. They land with both feet and they're they're successful right off the cuff. And I'm sure it was always not wine and roses. No, not always. I got into it knowing that there would be the great recession that we did have with the housing boom. Right. So I was able to actually see that years ahead and made a note to myself that when this started to turn, that I would get out, you know, as an entrepreneur, it's the worry is, you know, losing your shirt, or at least for me, it was losing my shirt. And I was seeing these larger companies that have been in the industry for decades who were, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. I just, that was just a fear for me. So I, I took the safe route at that point and, and got out. So like I said, I came up as a finished carpenter. So I ended up going on and, and doing energy auditing. And then from there, I went on and worked as a project manager for a millwork company. So I still stayed within the industry. You know, what's really cool about that, and, and let me cut you off for a second, is the fact that you were and have and continue to be into trades. Your lenses as a general contractor is is very different from those that kind of just stayed in the trailer or were project managers or were schooled in construction management. You actually, well, what Mackie Company likes to call, rolled up your sleeves and dug in. You got right. dirty. Exactly. Literally dug the ditches. Right. Yeah. Well, and that sets a different tone for any construction company because, you know, most of us in construction, we know how to do the work, but to try to flip it over and try to make it into a business is sometimes where, where the rubber meets the road. And that's where I think some of us are challenged with the protocols of how you need to get done. So what I see is your advantage is you didn't just, you know, do the work. You actually also went and did the the insider, the inside work that needs to get done, which is your project management. Mm -hmm. And that's a really challenging thing when you're in construction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that back end part, you need to have a firm grip on it, but you at least need to have some type of wherewithal about it, at least I think. And if you don't, then you should have somebody in your organization that does, and that is good with that, that can see all the procedural and structural and, and all of that on the administrative side, because it's, it's on both sides, right? So you've got the construction where you're actually doing the work side of it. And then you've got the um, back of house stuff that still needs to have the same, it's uh, own foundation and processes and stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let me flip it over to tell me what Trot Vince Construction does. What are its core competencies? Okay. Core line of business. I started residential. That's my core. I have done a number of light or small commercial projects, but the meat of it really is the single family residential, duplex, renovations, additions, new builds. But as far as the commercial side, I've done tenant improvements, build out, how do you call it? It's residential, commercial. So, you know, the the high rise building tenant turnovers and the improvements for the units when they go from apartments to condos. So I've done those and lobby spaces and chocolate studios, that sort of thing. 
Yeah. Let's talk about that chocolate studio because you were awarded or you received an award for it. Yes, a blend award. And so I won the commercial space award. It was formerly a dental office. It was formerly a bakery. It was formerly a like clinic and initially like a mom and pop grocery store. So we kind of took it back to its retro. They had gutted the entire thing and made a chocolate studio. I love that because it's the conversion, right? I think for some people like myself, it's, it's hard to see the old into something new. And, and the transition of it, that's a struggle. And you definitely have that skill set. I've actually taken chalk on site and like laid it out for people so that they can walk through the space so they can see, okay, is this how I want it to lay out? And does this flow feel right for me? You are not just specializing in one particular area, for instance, the carpentry trade that you were you know, trained for and such, and now you're a GC. How are you incorporating workforce? And I'm assuming you do subcontractors as well. How does that look uh, and shape into the Trot Bins construction model? So I have always sought out people of color for my project and made it a priority for me and my company because I wanted to see my representation both as women and people of color. I have subcontractors that are Black. I have subcontractors that are Hispanic women. And it just runs the gamut. And so I try to stack my trade. So for my plumbers, like I have two or three. For my electricians, I have two or three. And whether it's male or female or of color. So I try to keep that roster, so to speak. And that's really important, especially um, in construction. You know, studies upon studies have shown the disparities across uh, all of our states uh, that talks about the lack of communities of color, women in the workforce, but that also is mirroring in entrepreneurship in mm-hmm. construction companies that are founded and started and created by communities of color and women. It's always pleasant to hear that even us small companies ensure that we have communities of color. We represent women in our realm. That's just one of the coolest things, I think. Um, yeah, we I mean, do and if we don't support each other, I mean, how are others going to support us, right? It's always evolving. And you're always coming across someone new and also with aging out of the trades and getting the kids to get into the trades. There's a lot of kids, women, girls coming up that are interested in getting into the the construction industry, whether it's actually boots on ground or whether it's in the office. We're starting to see a broader range of that opening up for people who didn't necessarily know it was available. Let me segue into the macro of industry. You alluded to how the aging generation of the construction uh, industry and that we need to figure out a mechanism to bring the next generation in. What is your perspective on that? I mean, I know you clarified that component, but what other areas in this industry have you seen challenges that has been less than a appealing for entrepreneurs and even perhaps for the workforce? Well, as we talked about the back of the house prior. So for me, like they talk about federal projects, state projects, things like that, like affirmative action plans, things like that. Things that are are in place, maybe not in bylaws, but they're in place just innately that we're doing as companies of color 
or women in construction. They're within our company procedures, but it's not necessarily written down. So having an actual affirmative action plan, for example, um, to participate in XYZ projects. But there are also those in the industry who have plans put together, yet they don't necessarily execute them. True. That is right? the other side of it. Right, right. They just have it to say, yes, we do have an affirmative action plan. Yes, we do have an inclusionary plan. But is it executed the way that it should be? Because right. if it was executed the way that it was written, we wouldn't have a disparity study. Correct. So right. it's always the, the flying the ointment is challenged in this DEI work that construction agencies or construction companies and government agencies have in place because the intent to do good is there. The execution and the millions of excuses as a result of failed execution is what's hindering the progress. Exactly. And the other thing that I find with the industry, and I don't know if you feel this way at all, is the support, mm-hmm. the support for minority women and veteran-owned construction firms. Right. And what that looks like. Yeah. I have been back and forth and back and forth with regard to support and larger companies for years and just a wave that continues to kind of show up every now and again. And it's like you said, everybody has the good intentions, but what does that support really look like for a startup or someone who wants to go from a startup to to growing their business? What does that look like? on their end and our end? And how is it executed in a fashion that's beneficial for the relationship over the long haul and not just for this mentorship or this project or what have you? Because those goals are still going to be there trying to fulfill that. We're out here. You can't really say that I don't know where to go to find someone that can fulfill this, who has got the competencies you know, and the capabilities and the, you know, staffing and all of that, because we're here. And that does make sense, particularly in the construction industry. One being technology is not really our strong suit. A lot of us, even old and new, is still on pen and paper or prefer pen and paper. Mm -hmm. And the technology systems that exist, while can forward progress any company, it's either cost prohibitive or we don't know how to utilize technology. Right. And so I I am guilty of being one of those paper and pen persons. I need to take the idea or whatever it is that I'm working on, write it, draw it, feel it out, and then putting it into whatever system that it needs to go into. Because I've been trained on both sides of the coin, right? So I get that. But somebody who's going from the trenches to try and understand, again, that back of the house administrative part, I can see where they'd have the the difficulty with that. But finding somebody that's got that competency or that has the ability to teach you that and vice versa, somebody going from, you know, the, the business side of it and coming into to try and understand the trades part of it. Someone coming in from that side and transitioning over for the trades part. Construction encompasses so much. I mean, there's roofing, there's concrete, there's insulation. There's, I mean, you've just got to figure out where you want to start. Where's your start going to be? And then build from there. Sounds so cliche, but you know, you really do have to have that foundation. 
That's right. <laughs> it's so hard not to talk about foundations when you're in construction because at the root of it all, you know, you have to know beyond what your capability and capacity is in getting the work done. Right. And, you know, I talk about business foundations having four pillars and understanding what that is should not prevent you from starting a company. It's just simply saying you got to get this stuff worked on. You can't just leave this stuff alone because this back of the house is your uh, win or lose. Mm-hmm. And if yeah. you don't take care of that back of the house, it don't matter that you can, you know, put a nail in a wall and and, and yeah. do all that work. It's not going to mean anything for your business if you don't understand the principles and the, the pillars of a business foundation. And just like pouring, you know, a foundation for a home or a co- commercial building, there is a protocol. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, that building will be showing cracks in less than a year. Yeah, not settlement cracks. We're talking crack cracks that are structurally, you know, damaging. And so let me change this up a little bit and let's talk about uh, the successes, right? The successes and also the challenges, the failures, right? The shoulda, woulda, couldas that you could have done. We talked a little bit about how the industry may or may not be as helpful or may or may not be as connective as they could for small businesses. What elevated you? What elevated Trot Vins? Did you have a mentor? Did someone in the ecosystem support you and and champion for you? You know, did it work? Did it not work? And then how did success tie into or did not tie into that? So I had a little bit of both. So for example, I interned with Ryan Company, senior vice president of the division that I was assigned to. He was phenomenal. I mean, everybody at Ryan that I worked with was, was really phenomenal. So just taking those nuggets, both from the office project management side, from the site project management side, and the site soups and all of that, I consider those to be mentorship. I mean, because I learned a great amount from them that I've been able to carry on. Same with working as a casework mill worker. I learned a great deal there as well that I was able to bring over to my business. In addition to a couple of formal ones that for one reason or another didn't work out, schedules got busy, projects happened, this happened, people got sick. You know, it was during this whole COVID thing over the past couple of years. So we were dealing with that whole thing. So the timing of a really structured one, and that was the one with J.E. Dunn. Great partnership with those guys. Just the timing of all of that just didn't just didn't work out. So I took each of those components and teachings through those companies and brought it over into mine. And although I, I work mostly off of spreadsheets, Excel that have either been created and people have shared, or I've created based off of the processes that I learned along the way. Just really how to more so than all of the business stuff, which is the core of that, you know, running your own business is really the relationship for me. I try to be as receptive as I can towards people, hearing their sides. There's more than one way to get to the end result. Having those different viewpoints and uh, mindsets, because everybody thinks differently. So I, I think there's value in that. Yeah. So that's how I've kind of taken those structured and non-structured mentorships. And they're still going on today. So just because you have a business doesn't mean that there are no failures anymore. Like 
failures are gone. That's like down the road. <laughs> You know, failure's just up the street around the corner and down the block. Absolutely. Um, so <laughs> what do you do with that when you encounter failure? You know, what do you do with that? You know, how do you respond to it? Move forward. What do you know now that you wish you would have known then? What are the continuing challenges that you face in procurement? I know a lot of people say access to the projects. I get invites for projects all the time. So why do you suppose you get those projects? Why do you get invited? So I'm listed as a DBE, a woman owned company and black owned company. And I'm listed with PTAC, city and state and the county cert program. Sure, there's a couple of other programs that I am not thinking of right now. So I do get those in addition to the larger GC, McGough, Ryan, Freerick, those guys, I'm on their list as well. In addition to the municipalities and the um, the malls around town, I get enough invite. The thing that's been prohibitive for me and it might just be a me thing, it might just thing, it might not be anything else, is the holdings for the percentage of the project cost. So if it's 5%, if it's 10% of 100,000 or 200,000 or whatever, to hold that, to have, you know, tens of thousand dollars on somebody else's books, when that could be in-house and I could be working with and off of that, that's still a challenge for me. And then, like I said, having the affirmative action plans in place, having all of the those protocols actually in place in writing is what I mean. Those are still my challenges. And when you get all these, obviously, you know, you're, you're getting invitations and such. Do you respond to them? How, how is that play out for you? Is it overwhelming? How do you flush those out? Sure. First thing is square footage. If it's a hundred thousand square feet, I'm out. So square footage, location, I get things from Wisconsin, out of state, all that. And with those ones, I, I usually send a reply back saying, you know, either remove me or is there a way to change the parameters? Do you work within this range? Minneapolis, St. Paul, metro area, Twin Cities, that sort of thing. When I do actually open up a project and look at it, whether it's union or not, that puts me out because I'm a non-union shop. Uh, I know most people around town are union. So the commercial projects that I have worked on and come into contact with or been referred to have been privately owned. After that, then it's how long they want the return of the bid. I've gotten some where it's two days, three days. So those I don't reply to. Sounds like project management on their inside is kind of flawed. Like, and sometimes I'll get a bid from one place and then I'll get the same bid from another place and they'll be off by a couple of days. So those are some of the criteria that I utilize to see if it's something that I want to pursue. You work primarily in residential. Mm -hmm. So for the commercial projects, that's where retainage comes in. That's where the timeline of bid response comes in. So this is a two-sided question. Do you ever feel that in your commercial projects, your bid is shopped around? And then secondly, have you ever felt a project beyond capacity because of working capital? 
Because that's the challenge for small construction companies that I've spoken with, right? Mm-hmm. Is that their bid gets shopped and that they, know, you know, there's no uh, working capital available to them. Do you or did you experience that at all in your journey as a general contractor mm-hmm. in your commercial work? Yeah, I, I think that we all kind of get shopped and or shop others because some of the stipulations on some of these projects are that you have to have Rebid. Some of the counties, some of the states, some of those projects, you need to have at least three bids. So you're being shopped. I don't know whether you want to believe it or not, I guess. Everybody asks for more than one bid, even the large GCs, right? So we're all being shopped. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's a cost comparison, right? And, you know, in in most of the states, it's a low bid win. And the challenge with low bid is change orders, right? I mean, if you want the lowest bid, just be prepared for for change orders, because I've yet to get a contract that's that I've chosen as a low bid and not gotten change orders. And I sit here and go, man, I should have just gone with the middle guy or the high guy, because then maybe it would have been covered. There are companies out there that make their dollar on change orders. Exactly. And I've been on both sides of that, right? We all have, right? Whether we're the low bid or we're the high bid, I've circled back and I said, you know, what did you, what was your final number, you know? And I've gotten, oh, it was very close to what, to what you bid in the first place. Well, and you know, you could get that if you have relationships with the project manager or you develop relationships with the project manager, you can get end of the project summary to just you know, go back to whether it took the project two years, you know, if you have that consistent relationship, even if you didn't win mm-hmm. with that project manager, I tell you, it's, 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 it's really enlightening for you as a small Absolutely. business to learn that. So even you, even if you lost this one, maintain relationships and maintain contacts with that person. And once that project is over and done, come back to that PM and just be like, Hey, I know this project's two years old. You just closed it out. What did the numbers end up being? So I can improve myself. And that's one of the powers that we have that we don't seem to utilize. Right. Let's also look at ourselves. Mm -hmm. What could we have done better? Yeah. And so for me, it's, oh, I know they're busy. I don't want to waste their time. You know, that that's kind of where I come from. It's like you said, I've had conversations with the larger GCs, especially the ones that I did actually put bids in for and didn't get awarded. The lumber and material increases over the last few years didn't help <laughs> much oh. And and obviously the the delay in supplies probably doesn't help either because then it just puts a different type of pressure there. So let's talk about the failures. Which one? You pick. The the landscape is yours. You know, I like the shoulda, woulda, coulda stories primarily because, again, we we look back and that's the only way we move forward. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm one where, yes, uh, failure is an option. It is a learning experience and so on and so forth. But I also in project management, try to mitigate as much risk as possible so that we don't go all the way to fail. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. The first one that comes to mind is had an opportunity very early on in entrepreneurial career to step into the commercial realm. You absolutely had no knowledge of anything commercial. And so I let that be a hindrance instead of taking advantage of the opportunity and the individuals that were surrounding within that opportunity to advance my knowledge and skill set. Failures. I flooded a high rise building from the 17th floor down. (laughs) 
Okay. You learn quick from that. <laughs> so what, what happened in that scale? You leave a faucet on? You forgot to shut down the plumbing? No, that's what happens when your nail gun hits a pipe. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So... so but the good thing is I had excellent insurance. If you have nothing, have excellent insurance. So what, what was excellent insurance mean? I was covered. Everything that got damaged, everything that needed to be taken care of was taken care of. After the week of crying, yeah, I was able to finally see through all of the, okay, what was damaged? What do I need to do? Aside from the initial emergency shutdown stuff and notifications and all of that stuff. Um, <laughs> I'm running away. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I did. I but did, you retain, did you keep the project? Did you, were you able to move forward from that? Yeah. So okay, I ended up, I kept the project. I ended up doing all the repairs on the project. So I got paid for my mistake and then ended up getting more projects within the building. The should have, could have been, I should have known better than to fire that. <laughs> right. I should have known better. Should have maybe checked. Nowadays, it's a lot better because um and this was an older building that they were renovating so they don't have they didn't necessarily and it's not their fault but nowadays that we have those plates that go over the the plumbing piping and things like that anywhere there might be like a nailing your nail zone yeah a nail zone exactly well let me close this off to miko with the journeys that you've had as an entrepreneur and what would you advise an entrepreneur going into construction um, after all the, you know, the positives and negatives, the roller coaster journeys, the mentors, the industry doing what it's doing and the challenges that you've faced, what would you advise an entrepreneur going into construction? This next generation. Well, you know, there really isn't one path. So everybody's pathway is going to be different aside from the procedures and policies and that back end of the house, that that admin stuff and the foundation for that. If it's not in place, make sure that you're working towards that and you have somebody that see that through with you or have somebody that's knowledgeable in doing that so you're able to take that on. Can't say, you know, you should go out and go to trade school and that's going to be your pathway or you should go start out as an engineer and that's going to be your pathway to this. There's just so many opportunities in all of those arenas that you really can't go wrong. And if you can, find a mentor. A mentor can be someone who's just a tradesperson, who, who's your superior. It can be somebody in a program with one of the VCs. So figure out what that is for you. I think that's a great place to end this episode, D'Amico. Thanks for joining me today. Folks, we've done a few of these episodes now, and the most common theme that I find in terms of advice is relationships and mentorship. Sure, there are ups and downs in every relationship. Sure, you might not win every bid, but think about the knowledge you are gaining in the process. As they say, knowledge is priceless. Tomiko mentioned some points regarding the construction industry that we definitely need to highlight. The timeline of bid response, retainage, and the back-of-the-house administration that is lacking. We need to explore solutions to these issues, especially in an industry that is already lacking participation of minorities and women. We got to do better and stop doing the same old, same old behavior and consider success in small increments. You know, 
Programs are now available to ensure that the underserved, under-resourced, and underutilized communities benefit. Results should never be marginal. So I'm going to leave you with that. I got to tell you that it has been an honor speaking to these women, especially during Women's History Month. What an awesome time I've had with these women. Next month, the Procurement Games podcast focuses on Nevada-based businesses, kicking off with Evelyn Pacheco, CEO of Nevada's Women in Trades. Finally, don't forget to smash that like button and share a comment or two about this particular episode. And remember, go after that low-hanging fruit, but remember to look up at the rest of the tree filled with opportunities. Until next time. Thank you.